Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. Today's guest is Michael Z. Williamson, an author who writes military science fiction and military fiction, and who is best known for his libertarian-themed Freehold series, exploring military and political themes, as well as first contact with alien beings. We met originally at LostCon, I guess in the early 2000s, and later at DragonCon, and make it a point to see each other every year at DragonCon. I think of him as a survivalist, and from that perspective, he has been a spokesperson for the post-apocalyptic novel by Owen Hubbard, Battlefield Earth, on several radio shows. Welcome, Mike. Hi. Good to be here. (laughs) So um, we're going to be going over various aspects of your career, and um, I'm also interested in discussing how, you know, the how-to of writing military science fiction and military fiction itself and also discuss libertarian-themed science fiction. So, first of all, how did you originally get started as an author? Uh, I actually started writing when I was about eight. Uh, I was writing a book about rockets based on other books I'd read about rockets. And uh, then I started writing science fiction in junior high school. A friend of mine started got me interested in Heinlein's Juveniles. I read uh, all of those the library had. And uh, Ms. Kashak, the librarian, showed me some stuff by... Um, uh, Lester Del Rey, White, uh, several others. I read bunches of it, and I started writing. The stuff I was writing back then was very derivative, and I did some more in high school. I actually had a very good hit rate on letters to the editor, though. Uh, I, I knew it was good. Okay. I had <laughs> some kind of ability there, because if I sent a letter in, it got published. And uh, then I'd had another round of something that I looted some bits of it for Freehold later, but I did that in when I was active duty in the Air Force and sent that to Analog, who rejected it because, well, it really wasn't their type of thing and it wasn't that good, you know, you know be honest. But otherwise, and, uh, it was a for sure. <laughs> you you got to start somewhere. It's yes. all practice. And you know, I eventually looted a couple of characters from that and a couple of ideas and incorporated them into other stories. You know, from there, I, I was writing technical articles for uh, a couple of disaster preparedness websites few other things and getting paid for some of it and i was hanging out on bain's forum and i complained about all these rejection letters i was getting from the magazines and they all had you know alas it does not suit our needs at this time like you know stop with the the poetry you just say dear contributor thanks but no thanks and uh jim bain responded to me with uh, well maybe they're being you know alliterative alack alas allay you know that said send me one single chapter of something you're working on and i'll take a look at it and then he said, okay, well, send me another chapter. Uh, well, send me another chapter. Well, j- just send me the rest of the manuscript. Well, I really don't like that. Th- this is too long and wordy here. That's got to be fixed. Fix that. Okay, let's, let's just call it a deal. I'll, I'll buy the book. So um, I think they bought, <laughs> I think they had two new authors that year. Tom Cratman was one of them. I was the other. And uh, I've had a pretty good success rate. Occasionally they'll say, no, that doesn't really interest us, but can you do something else? And I'll give them another idea and they'll say, go with it. Uh, I've had short stories published with Daw and Mercedes Lackey's universes, a um, couple other publishers, and I, uh, Bill Fawcett packaged a uh, military sniper trilogy, contemporary fiction, for me with HarperCollins. Uh, I just got the rights to those back, and so I'm putting those out electronically. Well, good. So that leads, because a lot of the stuff you're talking about now is seems to be military-tinged, and I know you've got, what, a 25-year uh, stint with I the was, military? 
Yeah, I was active Air Force, Army Guard, uh, Air National Guard, Army National Guard again, Air National Guard again. Anytime someone had a slot I could promote into, I changed units. So how does a military career fit in with your writing? Is that has that been an inspiration for your writing, or is that just something that since oh, you're no, eight years old writing your first um, story that Hey the the uh yeah, there's so much to, to use for writing from any experience in the military because you have all the bureaucracy of the government, all the stupidity of the bureaucracy, and then the military sometimes takes it to new heights because of that. And these are really good stuff, too. I mean, you know, I had some, some great experiences. I worked with some brilliant people, but there's other times you're all just staring at each other going, how, how did this happen? Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, the thing I notice between writers who are veterans and writers who aren't is if they're not veterans, the stuff is too clean. Tom Clancy's writing was fascinating and lots of fun, but nothing works that reliably in the real world. Um, we had a uh, one time it was 30 below zero. So we were using a Hummer uh, to keep warm at the entry control point. And uh, someone had taped a sign on that says, do not shut the engine off. The starter's bad. So naturally, at some point, somebody shut the engine off, and we couldn't get it started again. Like it was right there. You know, we, the vehicle's not moving, and this is taped in front of the driver's seat. Uh, and someone turned it off. You know, just stupid stuff. Uh, stuff just stops working for no reason whatsoever. You know, roll the dice, and you know, there's a critical, uh, critical miss. That kind of stuff, I think, probably happens. Not that's not just reserved for the military. Those types oh, of no. stupidity, yeah. right? But people, a lot of times people who are writing military stuff, well, oh, and this works and this works. And it's like, well, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. Yeah. The, trying to make it the, where it's just the, the best possible scenarios that yeah. can come off for, for the hero. And if it mm -hmm. doesn't, it's because it's the second try-fail fair cycle. But then at the very end, then everything comes off just fine. Well, yeah, hopefully the hero does make it work anyway. But, you know, there can yeah. be all kinds of uh, issues on the way. Uh, at yeah. every kind of level. So any particular parts of your military career that like directly affected any of your stories or, uh, that you've written, or is it just as a general concept? Um, a lot of stuff has shown up in the, the two freehold anthologies. Uh, one's out and one's coming out in June. Um, I was an uh, engineer on the Air Force side, Air Base engineer and a mechanical section chief. And then on the Army side, I did uh, the forward support elements for infantry units, which is a lot of fixing stuff. And one of the things engineers are also trained in is how to break stuff. Because if you, if you can't take something with you, you want to make sure no one else can use it. You know, so, you know, and they didn't let us actually practice very often, but you know, training includes you know, blowing things up, setting them on fire, um, doing nasty mechanical things to them, leaving them in convenient places like in the middle of the runway, blocking doors, soaking things with water, you know, any, anything you can do to hinder access i learned how to recon for for mines and there's some really devious and nasty mines out there people think of a mine you step on it and it blows up um there's mines that will come hunt you down uh, there's mines that look like trees and they just count the number of troops brushing through an area and then eventually they blow up um some have time delays you know there's all kinds of haven't been told I can talk about it. It's probably declassed after this long, but they've never told me I can talk about it. But there's all kinds of uh, technical innovations in, in in ways to kill people. Um, so we wow. fixed a lot of equipment. We dug a lot of holes, and all all of this is very useful for slowing people down. There's um 
World War II incident that we, we recycled for one of these stories, someone left dinner plates all over the road. And a couple of them had mines underneath them. The rest of them didn't. But once you realize that that's a potential threat, you have to stop your convoy and check every single obstacle in case it is a mine. Wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, that, that's amazing. Just when you were, when you're in the military, were you actually riding at that time when you were deployed or did you? you I actually wrote uh, got back and then. No, I, um, yes, I started writing my first active duty tour and that stuff didn't get published. I was in the garden. I was getting published and all my bios say I'm a veteran. You know, they didn't say I was actively serving because, you know, that can, uh, color things. And, um, then uh, I actually wrote most of uh, Contact with Chaos, my first contact novel, while I was deployed. Kept me sane, you know, 12 hours in the scorching desert sun, listening to stuff happening and trying to duct tape stuff together and then back to the billet I had and tap, 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 tap. <laughs> yeah. I had the Olympics and a novel to write. Uh, so then did you... See, part of this, too, that I'm really interested in is for anybody who's, like I said, an aspiring writer, mm -hmm. how to be able to take what you're saying. Because you're, you're talking about, you know, the types of military fiction, you, the difference between somebody who's actually served and not, where the, the person that hasn't served, is there some type of trick or some type of a, of a tool or, or, or aspect they need to review or something they should read? Or what is it to make sure that what they're saying is actually believable, you know, for someone well, who's actually doing, been in the military. So if you're doing a uh, military fiction and you haven't been in the military, you know, Timothy Zahn's a good model because he was never in the military. He was um, a college student and became successful as a writer, physics, I believe, astronomy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he, he does some really good stuff and he based it on his experience with the college bureaucracy. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> you know, you, you've got your, you've got to fight your own system. You've got to get your own authorizations. And then you've got to deal with the enemy as well. So there's, you know, any, any kind of a background approach to, you know, from your day job. Yeah. You know, how well does somebody's day job actually match the official job description? Usually not very closely. Yeah. But, yeah. All right. That makes sense. So then as part of your career in the military, are there, do you use characters? Do characters evolve from that? Or is that characters just straight out of your own mind or? Um, Character is usually a composite. I'll pick a couple of traits or an, an attitude from somebody I know, possibly military, possibly not. I'll, you know, adapt it from there. I might merge a couple of different attributes from other people. Because you know, every character should have strengths, weaknesses, and you know, ha has depth to them. But by all means, you know, if if some if you've met somebody who's a distinctive character, they can be the basis. For a fictional character, but they, you shouldn't model them too closely unless you're actually doing a bio. Right, right. Yeah, you, you want to make them your own, you know, add some flaws. And if you're doing it right, even if you don't like the character, you'll you'll come to understand their perspective. You know, why is this character acting like this? Well, they feel this way. I mean, they, they I don't, but that, that's what <laughs> they are. Right. So now your your fiction that you write, your military fiction especially the freehold is you say it's a, it's libertarian theme. So let's discuss that a little bit. Like, first of all, define and describe what libertarianism is or what a li libertarian is. And maybe from when it was first conceived and how it's evolved now, 40 some odd years later. Yeah. 20 years later, 20, 20, 
I started writing that in 98 and it was sold in 2002 and published in 2004. So yeah, a little over 20 years. But the libertarianism uh, itself was conceived, I think, you know, 20 years before that. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was ruined long before that. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you know, if you have five libertarians, you'll have six different uh, positions on what libertarianism is. Um, yeah. I, I was just exploring the concept of, you know, if you're going to have a, uh, an off-world colony developing, they're probably not going to have a huge amount of time to start with for bureaucracy, administration, things like that, much like the U.S. did. You're dealing with the nuts and bolts of staying alive, building infrastructure, and then you can worry about having a, a government to manage it all. And I extrapolated from there, if you decided to keep the government as minimal as possible, there's advantages, there's disadvantages. So, you know, who plows the roads? If you don't have a government entity who's plowing the roads in winter, who does it? Who builds the roads? And you know, some of these things, as technology progresses, there's workarounds. Sometimes there isn't. And then you have to decide whether you're going to go with that or not. And uh, We live fairly rural here. And you know, one of the ongoing things is people who are moving out of the city into the neighborhoods that are being built around here. And well, it's so quiet and peaceful out here in the country, but you know, there's all this noisy equipment and, uh, you know, and occasional gunfire. And it's like, yeah, you're, you're in the country. There, there's farm farming going on and people shoot on their property. Sometimes it's pest control. Sometimes they're just shooting for fun. Um, that's what you get when you move out here. But we wanted the peace and quiet of the country. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's a, ongoing you know urban versus rural development that happened in the u.s happens in a lot of the colonial countries and in this case they started with that and they decided to keep the the infrastructure the government infrastructure minimal and i, I just explored where that would go mm -hmm. so i was finding it interesting because you've got such an extensive military career and then libertarian you know, so yeah, that was often a problem. Yeah, although it's actually there's there's quite a few libertarians and anarcho-capitalists in the military, and uh, then sometimes there's um, friendly social disputes because very often very conservative religious people, and then there's a handful of you know pagans, there's a handful of atheists, you know, agnostics. And there's a lot of intense but friendly discussions on you know philosophy. When there's nothing yeah, else to do, so. I'm sure. Yeah, you can. Some of them were very enlightening. It. it was it was fascinating. So. Yeah. All right. So now with libertarianism, so how does that how is it received, or how is it like fit in with today's society? And and because you're continuing to to write right. books with this concept of you know this laissez-faire government. Mm -hmm. which is kind of like the opposite of what's happening. So I'm not trying to go into a government discussion yeah, here, but a political discussion here, but... It seems to be a, um, a normal evolution of any society that it, begets, it becomes more and more entrenched with bureaucracy, particularly, and government generally as time goes on until eventually there's either some kind of collapse or some kind of reset. And uh, it, it's, you know, people generally don't want to be beset with troubles or problems so they want something else to take care of those problems for them but then the issue is can a government respond fast enough and can it even fix the problem you know frequently right. you know there, there's things they can't fix but people want it fixed anyway 
So being then a libertarian and writing your libertarian themed stories, what type of a readership do you have? Is it just like people just like good science fiction? They like military fiction? Yeah, so just no, like actually, a different view on it? Yeah, I, uh, I have uh, readers all the way across the political spectrum. One of the best compliments I got was a woman who walked up to my table at a convention and said, I despised the politics and I couldn't put it down. Like, well, <laughs> then I did my job. So Exactly. That, that's... And they they liked the story enough that they, they yeah on your um, freehold uh, series because you've how many books are with that now this is you've got your second um, one coming out the anthology is a second anthology coming out although so I did an anthology before that that goes through the universe I mean it is freehold related and then four or five novels um, I'd have to count <laughs> and this is all published with Bain yes. Good, yeah. I had um, I've had several authors with Bain mm -hmm. on this on this podcast. Yeah, they're very professional to work with. Um, you know, if they if they ask for fixes, it's because they see a issue in the flow and pacing of the story. Yeah, you know, and they you know they've got Eric Flint, who is a Trotskyite, at one end of the spectrum. They've got Tam Tom Kratman, uh at the other end of the spectrum, and then they've got uh, you know a couple of us floating off to the side going. Uh, you know, so what's this government thing? <laughs> yeah, I had Tony Weisskopf on as a, as a guest mm -hmm. um, back in December. Yeah, I love working with her. She's great. Yeah, she really is great. And uh, it was amazing when she told me that um, she was actually at one of the Rise of Future events when we were in New York. This is when she was a, a young pup, you know, in publishing. Mm -hmm. And she helped uh, cut the cheese and <laughs> serve refreshments. You know, at the, she's at been the in the field ceremony. since she was 22, I think. Yeah, and she's so just 30, yeah, she, about 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just, you know, under Jim, just kind of like mm -hmm. growing and learning all the different uh, hats and jobs and, and activities there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So more power to her on that for sure. Mm -hmm. So um, now when we spoke, when I had, when we were working together on you helping to publicize the Battle for the Earth campaign, I kind of viewed you as, like I said, a survivalist. And I mean, if right now we're, we're just talking, if people had a chance to hear about your, your uh, arsenal and all the stuff that you, that you uh, keep there and what, how you use the money that you were, that I was paying you for doing the, mm -hmm. the, um, the radio interviews. Uh -huh. So tell me about just being a survivalist in general, then we'll get into how that ties in with, yeah. with your fiction. So every time, um, when these terms comes up, it, it rapidly gets corrupted by sensationalist media. You know, it was the survival movement in the eighties and there was a handful of fringe nut jobs, you know, some of whom are still around and, Oh, you know, the survivalists want a revolution. And like, well, no. And then it became, you know, the prepper movement and the same allegations. Yeah. And any movement has idiots and nut jobs attached to it. It's impossible right. to avoid. One of the ones I brought up was that, uh, two years ago now here in the space of 10 days we had um a tornado knock down one of the trees uh, a flash flood that flooded this room i'm sitting in now and, and we're on a hill we live on the side of a hill and we had um a lightning strike that took out some of the electronics and did long-term damage to my computer which i finally just replaced you know knocked everything offline for several hours uh, you know, in 10 days, bang, 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 th three natural disasters. And then as we noticed uh, uh, just about a year ago now, everyone was frantically hunting for toilet paper in the stores. 
yes. we buy it. We get a 60 roll, I think a 60 roll crate delivered on schedule. My, my wife handles all that, you know, sanitary supplies, diapers, everything. Uh, so we went to the store just to do our routine shopping of a couple of items. And it's like, holy cow, what happened here? It's like the locusts came through. Exactly. And, you know, how are you guys doing for supplies? It's like, um, fine. Yeah, we've, we've got our own well. We've got uh, bottled water. We've got a septic system. We've got uh, three freezers full of food, MREs, dry goods, pantry full of cans. You know, we just keep this stuff on hand routinely because uh-huh. things like this happen. Um, we had a, a snowstorm here a few weeks ago that, you know, was only a, we were only stuck for like three days. Uh, but we're on a uh, tertiary road, really. We're next to a near a state highway, but by the time they plow here, it's been a, a day or two. Right. You know, so it's just a, an attitude and a mindset of, you know, so what can I easily do? And you don't need a huge budget for it. You know, you buy a few cans here, a few cans there. Make sure you have uh, firewood if you have a fireplace. I insist on a fireplace in the house. That's one of my, um, several years ago, the furnace went out. And between the stove in the kitchen, the fireplace downstairs, we kept the house at 70 degrees in sub-freezing weather for about uh, four days until they could come out and uh, replace it. You know, it, it's all just uh, you know, mindset, you know, not freaking out, not waiting for a revolution. Although if it happens, you know, you know I, I did uh, one presentation. It was a list of potential threats and you all the way up to the Yellowstone caldera exploding and nearby supernova. And when you get to think, you know, there's nothing you can do. So you don't worry about those. Right. But, uh, right. yeah. So I'm being a survivalist then. Cause that, that's why I was wanted to talk to you about it because it's, there are the, like I said, the, the exposés quote unquote done by the media to mm-hmm. make it seem like it's, it's just like I said, the whack jobs. But survivalism mm-hmm. is actually a very sane approach to life. Sure. Yeah. Make sure you're not so, uh, living day to day. You've got to have some kind of, you know, buffer. Just like you have savings of money, you need savings of you know food, clothing. And uh, you brought up the uh, the gun collection. I do. I do have an extensive collection, and you know, my wife got me into collecting uh, classic shotguns from you know a hundred years ago or so. All of which are handmade, beautifully engraved, and uh, they're, um, they're uh, beautiful. They're beautiful weapons. Yeah, and then I like um, modern tactical stuff. Yeah, I've handled it a lot in the military, and I've done some research and development. I've done beta tests for manufacturers because I was a competitive shooter in the army. And uh, yeah, you, you need some means of defending your stash in an emergency, defending the house if there is an attack. And out here, I've had to put down uh, predators who were eating our chickens. We lost 35 chickens one week. And uh, I shot uh, two raccoons in the possum, and that stopped. We occasionally get coyotes, but they haven't been able to get through the fence to the the animals. Right. You know, guns are certainly part of the equation, but they're not the only part of the equation. Although, yeah. you know, one of the magazines pointed out in the 80s that they sold best when they had a gun on the cover. Uh, yeah, your your books and magazines will sell if there's yeah. a hot chick or a weapon on the cover. That's just uh, the way people are. Or a hot car too, hot car, or maybe all three. Oh yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, actually, on, um, on MeWe, there's a thread that's uh, it, yeah, it's women, guns, and and cars is the theme of the of the group. Yeah. So on, um, I guess on writing libertarian fiction. Any particular, mm-hmm. or actually any type of political 
philosophy with respect to writing fiction. Is there anything that you've found that, because you've, you've got the libertarian, but then you've also have the, the left and the right as well. Mm -hmm. is, it, is it viewed that way, first of all? Um, Were libertarians more central? Well, uh, Dr. Purnell came up with the two axes of economic and uh, social liberties versus state control. That seems to be more accurate. And, you know, and I'm all the way down in the corner and outside going, uh, you stated. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, I mean, left and right, when they originally developed was during the French Revolution. And uh, the left was the the workers and the right was the the landowners and the nobility. And uh, this that's not truly accurate anymore, but the terms get used, so. And libertarians get accused of being everything. I've uh, I get accused of being a uh, a socialist, which is ridiculous. Um, people love to make um, Mussolini comments about libertarians. It's like so, fascism is kind of the exact opposite of libertarianism. Yeah. And me, me being an anarcho-capitalist, it's like uh, uh, fascists support a strong central government. We don't. <laughs> so, um, so the, you know, there's a lot of. Uh, a lot of angry people out there who you know, are outraged that you don't like their particular form of government. And it's like, well, you know, there's yeah. a variety of governments on the planet. There's a variety of governments in the States. Find one you like. Yeah. Yeah. When uh, Elwin Hubbard wrote the book, Final Blackout, did, have you read that one? Yeah, that's, uh, I've read big chunks of it. Yeah, that's uh, disturbingly prophetic and socially well, the, the socialists ca referred, called him a, uh, a fascist, and a fascist called him a communist mm -hmm. uh, for writing that. And um, How it really does fall into that category more of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was reviewed as like one of the most incredible anti-war stories ever written. Mm, um, it obviously it really was. showed. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I don't know that it would have been considered libertarian types of, but it was definitely survivalist and he was very much yeah. the lieutenant who's the only he doesn't have right. a name he's just lieutenant mm -hmm. is the one that uh survives and he helps his the only form of government he has is him making sure that right. his his troop survives right as they get yeah. through war-torn europe at the time mm -hmm. and any and any uh military hierarchy was shown to be as you were describing very uh futile with uh, a lot of the, the weird bureaucracy that was bureaucracy for the sake of bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, so on, like I said, this is because this, we're talking about writers of the future here, we've got the aspiring writers and it was originally created uh, by Mr. Hubbard to provide that means to, to help the aspiring writer and artist to be uh, seen and, and acknowledged. So, for an aspiring writer and getting into and writing either speculative fiction or even more specifically yourself, mm -hmm. military fiction, the uh, libertarian fiction, what are some of the do's and don'ts? Uh, so you need to, you know, write something and make sure you finish it and um, you know, have some kind of plot concept of, of what you're doing. In my case, I write the, an ending first. I may change the ending, but it gives me a, a destination to go to when I'm writing, so I don't just ramble on for pages. Uh -huh. um, I know people who write very detailed outlines and then work their way through. 
Um, I tend to hit high points and then blend things together, which wouldn't have been possible before the word processor. But uh, but you have to have some kind of plan on what you're writing and why. Write it, get it completed, and figure out what the market is. You know, which publisher are you sending this to? I mean, there, there's some oddball ones out there, like uh, Dune got published by, I believe, Peterson Publications, who normally does car manuals. Um, I'm, not sure how that, I'm not sure how that came about, but uh, you know, if, if it's young adults, there's publishers who specialize in that. If uh, if it's technical military fiction, you know, like you know, for short stories, if it's highly technical, analog is the place to start. Um, so you have to or writers of the future, or, or writers, writers of, the of the future. Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, uh, there, there's always uh, uh, anthologies out there who are you know looking for for talent, and uh, yeah. But yeah, write something, get it finished, figure out who the market is, send it there. And if it doesn't work there, send it somewhere else. And then in the meantime, be working on the next story. You know, it's an, it's an ongoing right. learning process. Everything you write, you learn from and just keep going. There's a certain amount of luck. You know, there's some people who are never going to get published just from pure luck, but there's also people who don't get published because they're not very good. Um, it's not everybody's forte. But if you have right. talent and... If you work on the talent, because you have to, you know, the talent's no good if you don't put the effort in. You know, there, there's a respectable probability that someone will go, hey, this is good. And, you know, and then you get published. Okay, good. So on your, um, on your bio, it goes into how that you've consulted on military matters, weapons, and disaster preparedness for Discovery Channel and Outdoor mm -hmm. Channel Productions in your editor-at-large for Survival Blog. Um, mm -hmm. So does that, does your having written help on that or does that help your writing is, or is it just two separate channels for you? Um, Outdoor Channel invited me um, for, uh, for the best defense show and that was on bugging out. Um, and then the um, Discovery Channel gig uh, was, was kind of hilarious. Um, Chuck Gannon, Charles Gannon, who writes for Bain also does a lot of script consulting. Yeah. And, uh, the show was talking to him, and he recommended me for uh, both strategic consult and for I, I loaned them like a hundred weapons. I, I took a hundred weapons down for filming, and uh, then they called uh, Jim Rawls at Survival Blog and asked, you know, and he said, "Well, the, the expert on this would be Michael Williamson, our editor at large, who also writes sci-fi." <laughs> <laughs> and then five minutes later, they called back in. So apparently, you're the guy to go to for this. It's like, well. Um, <laughs> I'm one of the guys to go to for this. I mean, there are others, but it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, Outdoor Channel paid well. Discovery Channel paid, so the writing led to that. But for these days, the way media is, you know, being able to put on your bio that you worked on a TV show. It's like, oh, you worked on a TV show. Well, yeah, I've also yeah. got nine best-selling novels and you know, forty or fifty other stories in you know three languages. Yeah, but you were on a TV show, so. <laughs> so <laughs> Especially with the younger crowd. So. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, TV is the uh, be all and end all. Yes. Now, is it because of that that you now test and review firearms and gear for manufacturers? How did that well, I, was already, I was already doing that. And I, I've actually, I need to get back into that. I was doing it fairly consistently for a while. Um, yeah, I got sent flashlights, backpacks, emergency rations, compasses, all kinds of stuff like that. I avoided the electronics because um, I can use them, but I'm not. Even though I've got training in 
electronics, I'm the wrong person to be handing gadgets to. Yes, I, I shot competitively in the army, so I'm pretty good with uh, checking over a rifle for you know, accuracy, reliability, ease of operation, and maintenance. And so people would, and now those you have to send back. You know, yeah, fifteen hundred dollar rifles, you know, two thousand dollar rifles are, aren't gifts. But you, you know, the flashlights you usually get to keep. The rifle, not so much. So, <laughs> you got a room full of flashlights and spent shells. <laughs> actually, I've, I um um I did wind up with quite you know over twenty years. They've all eventually worn out, but I, I wound up with some good gear, and I would do long term you know follow ups. Hey, I've had this thing in use for four years now, and it's still working. And if they were still in business, that was you know, good marketing for them. For sure. Uh, so now you were originally born in England, raised in Liverpool, mm -hmm. and then Toronto, Canada, and then now you're in Indianapolis. So mm -hmm. has the various, like the various, I guess, mentalities or political philosophies of England versus Canada and the United States, is that affected or has that enhanced your, um, Absolutely. your view? Yeah. How so is that? So my, my father's Scottish. My father's Scottish. My mother's English. Uh, I, I was born Birkenhead near Liverpool, and um, then I was uh, seven when we moved to Mississauga near Toronto. And my father worked for Trans Canada Pipelines there. He'd worked for Pilkington and Fiberglass, and then he got a job with Owens Corning in the U.S. I was eleven, and um, I, I literally changed continents. It's like pack up everything you know, say goodbye to everybody you know. You're Never going to see them again. Uh, so that was, uh, you know, a, an interesting break. The, the biggest thing I noticed when we got to Canada, um, which isn't the U.S., but has some similarities with the U.S., you know, we got to Canada, and I'm in a car where my feet don't hang over the seat, and there's a radio in the car, and there's air conditioning in the car, and there's power windows in the car. And this is not something that was common in the U.K. at the time. And then we went to a grocery store where there's just hundreds of feet of produce and fresh meat, and you can just help yourself. You don't have to haggle over it. And they'll load it into the car for you. And it was just a, you know, a complete change. It's like, wow. Yeah. It, it was amazing. And um, uh, the, the weather, you know, because the UK is rainy much of the year. Uh -huh. and not, not as warm. And, you know, Toronto, same temperature ranges, same climate as I'm in here, sometimes it breaks 100 degrees. And then in the winter, it can be 30 below, both of which were way beyond anything I'd experienced in the UK. In Canada, like most people, we were apartment dwellers. Uh, there's so many people in the, um, uh, the southern peninsula near, near Toronto. Everyone, almost everyone lives in apartments. And you know, the, you know, the apartment was you know three bedrooms, two baths. Uh, we had a squash court and swimming pool and underground parking and uh, outdoor tennis courts and you know it was it was nice you know a nice apartment living yeah and uh walked to school and uh and then you know got to the u.s and one of the things i remember getting to the u.s was uh the blizzard of 78 and i went walking into school and everything's quiet and snowy and i knocked on the door and janitor came by and opened the door and i said school and he says oh it's closed because of the blizzard it's january because i just moved down from toronto where they had lake effect snow i was like it's january <laughs> it snows in january why would you close the school over snow <laughs> so <laughs> and uh <laughs> and they get snow in ohio you know but it was just more than they were used to so you know things like that you know greatly color 
my, my perception. Yeah. So now you've got how many best-selling uh, novels? Uh, so I've got two Locust bestsellers and at least seven Wall Street Journal bestsellers. So they all the because when, when you talk about you, you like you're all over the um, the spectrum on what you like to write. You know that you've got your fiction, those are all sci-fi. Got, mm -hmm. Those are all sci-fi. Yeah. Okay. So do you prefer writing science fiction? Obviously, that seems to be your, yeah. your survival forte. <laughs> yeah. well, so, you know, the Freehold Universe, you know, there, there's a war going on, there's politics, there's, um, there's militaries. And, you know, like in our worlds, they're all hamstrung by existing budgets, operating guidelines, laws, yeah, etc. If you're writing honestly, the, 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 the ammo is not unlimited like it is in a game. Uh, you can't just shoot things at random. Yeah. There's rules of engagement. There's you know, entire operating principles of how you do this. And partway through, I said, you know what? This is, uh, I, I, I want to do something you know, more casual. So the, the Ripple Creek um, trilogy, and I'm eventually doing a fourth one. That's in the Freehold universe, but elsewhere in the timeline. And they're future high-tech bodyguards. And uh, so I had them get cut off from support. They've got the principal they're protecting and they need to extract and evacuate him to safety. Mm -hmm. uh, so they just get to uh, blow up whatever they want and spend money and, and shoot things. And it was, uh, <laughs> it was refreshing change from him. So what's, you know, what's the, the budget and the operating, there's no op budget or operating guidelines, blow something up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, more movie like, you know, more, more fun. Mm -hmm. Now, how familiar are you with Writers of the Future? Um, I've read quite a few of the anthologies, actually, way back, not recently. I haven't had time to read anything fiction-wise recently. And mm -hmm. uh, no, it's, uh, you've, you've developed some really good writers, and uh, yeah, the concept's great. Uh, and I've tried to emulate that. I've brought uh, several new writers into my anthologies, and you know, people I'd interacted with, and it's like, you know, so uh, you know, let's see how you're your writing voices, give me a sample. Well, that looks good. Okay, well, let's, you know, develop a story. You know, the, we, we need new writers. Just, you know, the old ones get repetitive and eventually stop uh, for one reason or another. Yes. And there's always new things to write about and, and you know, new writing styles. Yeah. That's one thing we've definitely found with Writers of the Future, and I'm always amazed with it, how the um, – Writers come with such fresh new ideas, and you just kind of like, mm -hmm. how do they think of that? You know, it's just, it's, I'm fascinated because we're now ready to publish uh, volume 37. Wow, it's been but that long. Yeah. Yeah. But there's, all many, there's always so many different story ideas, both in, in fantasy and science fiction, or mm -hmm. um, sometimes we do a little bit of dark fantasy, but we keep it so it's pretty much all PG so that right. junior high on up can, can read it and stuff. But yeah, that's something I want to make sure that people understand that these these books uh, contain some of the they are the best of the best. This is the it's a, an amazing field of of uh, aspiring writers that submit, and what the judges get is just the story and a number. They have no idea if it's male, female, age, right. nationality, anything. And we just recently started when if a person is writing from England and they use UK English, that's what gets that's what gets published. You know, if it's Canadian <laughs> or Australian or United States. So that started last year in volume 36. And so you've got three different versions of English. 
Yeah, I have a story. I have a story about that. <laughs> um, the uh, second Ripple Creek novel, the uh, one of the characters, well, some of the characters are uh, Welsh, and mm-hmm. um, the, the principal they're protecting and the family are Welsh. So I went. I have two different stories about this. So I went through, and everything from their POV was done in British spelling, British uh, rhetoric, British um, right mannerisms. So you know, O U R instead of O R, things like that. And I uh, got to Bain, and Tony made the executive decision that the dialogue would stay that way, but she wanted all the rest of it to be an American standard for ease of publication. It's like, okay, fine, you know, this is if that's the 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 reality we're facing then sure let's do that and then when it got to the printer they helpfully corrected everything to american standard <laughs> it's like, everything yeah so why are my brits speaking like americans i know and then uh my now ex-wife and i did several stories for mercedes lackey and in the um elemental masters universe which is set in uh britain in the early 20th century so i just switched over and did everything in uh you know, British dialect, and uh, I'd send her what I was working on, and she'd fix it. It's like, no, 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 we're doing it in British. We got that worked out, and we sent the story in, and they said it's really good, but the uh, the whole universe has been published in American standards, so that's what we're doing. It's like, ah, oh, <laughs> so, that worked. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, no, I'm, I'm delighted to hear you're keeping it in the uh, in, in the format it's written. Yeah, and that, that affects that affects how you read it. Yeah, it does. It colors it. Yeah, you, then you know that that's what it is. It just helps it to mm-hmm. actually enter that into that universe. And especially when you start seeing colloquialisms that are, you know, not American. If yeah. the if the writing style isn't American as well, it flows better than suddenly having this jarring. Where did that come from? Yeah, yeah. So it's just we found it was good on that, and it's also it it adds to the global appeal of writers of the future. Mm -hmm. And um, we now also have the illustrators, which is, I think I'm fascinated with because now, because we have seen more entries in the illustrator contest, Mm -hmm. we have in the last volume, we had one of the winners from Vietnam and it's a different art form than Mm -hmm. a winner we had from Iran, which is a totally different art form than the person we had from Turkey, which is a different art form. Then we had UK, we had US and um, we've got a winner this year from Portugal. So they all have different, you know, basic art styles. So we have them all right now featured and it makes such an amazing, I think better presentation representation of, of art in general. So we're not trying to say, let's, let's make it the, you know, the Gothic American standard, whatever it's going to be in terms of art. It's just all these different styles of art. And they're just the, the colors that are used from Mexico versus Vietnam versus Iran, I said, it's just, it's amazing seeing that. And we've got that now as part of the book as well with Writers of the Future, which people are really into art can, can uh, find stuff they won't otherwise see anywhere. Right. Yeah. I've seen some amazing you know, art on uh, some of the, the forums and sites. There's some very, very talented, both photographers and uh, painters and, you know, computer uh, artists out there. Yeah. And that's part of what we're trying to do now with this, this podcast because we have each episode is listened to it goes to about 100 different countries and so try to make it so it, it appeals to as many people as possible and to have it so that you know pearls of wisdom that you're able to drop you know in this interview can be used by uh, writers anywhere 
or some aspect of it they can learn to be able to to better polish their writing or to open up a new aspect to their writing. So how has your evolution gone from when you first started, besides the fact that you were just copying what you read elsewhere, to becoming like the type of writer that you are now? Um, I read a lot of nonfiction uh, that gets me background for stuff, you know, both historically and um, developmentally. I mean, I, I've certainly improved dramatically as a writer, um, and I've started using more points of view in a story, you know, rather than just one or two. And we've got somewhere, you know, there's multiple characters and multiple interactions. And I've had to pay attention to having, you know, the characters interact with each other, not just having this couple and this couple and these two people over here. Um, but, you know, definitely more more depth and, uh, and subplot, you know, because each character has their own development. Each relationship between any two characters has its, its own development. And, you know, then the, uh, you know, there's the environment and the conflict and any sub-conflict, you know, you know, and then, you know, the difference between, say, a villain or a, you know, a, a problem in, in the, if it's man versus nature uh, versus a foil who isn't necessarily hostile, but is, you know, a, an obstruction. So I, right. I've, I've learned a lot about uh, this type of stuff and, and how to make the writing much thicker and richer. So do you, you read a lot to be able to help you see how the people do stuff as mm -hmm. well as just yourself getting more experience just because a writer writes. And so as you write, you get better and better. Well, I like reading. Um, and I wish I had more time for fiction. But I, I, I read lots and lots of uh, relevant uh, nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, right now I'm doing um, the second uh, time travel novel that's set in Paleolithic Central Asia. So I've been reading a lot of technical development, Stone Age, some Bronze Age, even though that's further ahead than where I'm writing just to see how the development went. Um, linguistics. So for your like research that. is a big part of what you do for your science fiction. Yeah. So to put together one of your you know, one of your science fiction novels off world. Mm -hmm. So what type of stuff would you normally research or have you research, which adds to your bullpen to make that as realistic, as plausible as you can? What type of research do you do? Uh, so for star systems, uh, astronomy, physics, um, options for biology and uh, geology, then, um, you know, those will all affect what the climate is going to be and that's as far as the technical background and most of the most of that's not actually visible to the readers you know it, it, mm -hmm. I, I, very occasionally I, I, had, I had someone say uh so the climate you describe for uh grenya and the freehold universe is actually how the climate would be on a planet like that like yeah i know i did that on purpose like you actually researched that like yeah i've got a friend who's uh works at air force global weather central who's a uh you know forecaster and meteorologist and i you know consulted with him and a couple of climatologists and put that together. And, yeah. But, um, you know, that's, that's the background there. And then the environment will color the culture to some degree. Uh, and, you know, so will, you know, distance resources. You know, if you've got lots of resources, you have lots of uh, free time to devote to other pursuits. If you don't, it's uh, hand to mouth existence. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then um, as I be became relevant for the alien invasion 
uh, for uh, Discovery Channel, geography matters. Uh, cities are typically near coasts or major waterways because they had to be, both to get material goods in and to get waste out. You can't have huge cities in the middle of the plain, like here in Indianapolis, without modern technology. You know, trucks and rail make this possible. Uh, without that, we're on a really minor secondary river, and this would be a little settlement, not, not a major city. Chicago would still be huge because it's right on the lake and on a river. Okay, so, yeah. that's, so, so you do a lot of, of study, and I've had it happen on, with several interviews with um, several judges and just other writers themselves who they didn't get it right. Larry Niven talks about it mm-hmm. on his ring world, you know, that uh, got that beginning yeah. is, Two things wrong, but yeah, the, they weren't immediately visible to most readers. He had, um, yeah, but the one, people that was had, visible to talked about it. Yeah, he had the character going the wrong way around the world uh, yeah. through uh, transfer booths. And then for the ring world, it's one, unstable without attitude just to maintain its position because a solar flare could push it, push it offline. And two, the uh, slowly moving shadow squares would lead to t- way too much twilight. So those actually have to be spinning retrograde, so the twilight is shorter and the daylight longer. But I mean, for his yeah. first pass was absolutely amazing, you know, even if uh, there were flaws in it. Yeah, but he definitely had his fans that pointed it out. So it, he, he pointed out it's important to do your homework on it. If, you want, if, you need, if you're going to pass muster with the guys that really know that, at least that general subject, uh, yep. you need to do your homework. There's, there's been several times I've read something and gone, so that's not how you do a parachute jump. <laughs> you you should have just uh, had them jump and had them on the ground and skipped everything in between because you, you, you got that wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, I saw a commercial once where they were jumping out, so yeah. that's what it seemed like. Yeah, that, watching the that... videos and... Um, you know, that, that was a sport that wasn't allowed for a long time. And, uh, man, that's insane. It looks like fun. It also looks like it's insane. What was that? The wing suiting where they, they're, oh, yeah. they, it's basically a glider and they're going largely in Switzerland, going down the sides of mountains a few feet off the, uh, off, off the, uh, the landscape. And there's even one video where you see the guy underneath him slap into the ground and, and died. I was like, yeah, that's, uh. You realize that guy just died, right? I mean, this video looks great, but that, someone uh, lost their life in this sport just now. Yeah. So on, um, I think that the, the significance of this is that you have to do your homework if you're going to be, and do your research properly mm-hmm. if you're going to actually be writing credible science fiction. Because right now, there are so many people writing good science fiction that what makes something from being good to great it's going to be being able to actually handle that so that the reviews come in yep. saying, wow, this, he got it right. And, and write what you know. You know, if, uh, you know, a character can be an observer and a character can be an actor. You know, your character can be management rather than, you know, the operator. You know, there's all kinds of places your character can be. And if one of those is your, uh, your field of expertise, then use that because you will bring more depth to it and make it more interesting. I mean, there, you know, there's Hollywood movies about finance, which is not that interesting a subject. But boy, you pick the right character, you know, the right presentation, which you, you know, for screen also involves an actor, and you can make a multi-million dollar selling movie 
about you know somebody doing a trade deal. You know, it's, right. it's all in how it's presented. So, so if you're if you're an expert at managing something or researching something, then make that the story. Yeah, there's, there's been some uh, amazing stories about doing archaeology for alien civilizations, for example. You know, there's uh, it's entirely possible to you know just have somebody digging in the dirt and then extrapolate from what they're finding and pile up the research and be fighting with uh, budget and bureaucracy and uh, you know developing you know new ideas. Exactly. So now you've uh, written all these books, and if, if someone's not familiar with you, what would you recommend? Is there um, is there primer? Mike, the Michael Z. Williamson is Michael Z. Williamson when looking mm -hmm. when when googling you. Yep. Um, what's the what do you recommend as the primer of to read for you? Um, yeah, both my uh, ex wife and my wife keep throwing freeholder people. They say that's the. Uh, and I'm a much better writer now, but I, I you know, I'm, I'm proud of it. It it sold well. It appeals well. There's good content. I just, I, I don't reread my old stuff, but I know that I'm significantly better than I was then. But that's the foundation for the rest of the universe. I'm very happy with how a long time until now, my my time travel novel turned out. Um, that's uh, it's ten troops in two trucks on a convoy. All of a sudden, there's a bang. Uh, they're displaced. They don't know where they are, and eventually they figure out they're in the Paleolithic, and all they've got is what they're carrying and the contents of two trucks, and they're going to have to survive with that. And uh, I'm finishing up the sequel now, but I, I was very, very pleased with how that turned out. It's not in the Freehold well, universe, great. but uh, it's uh, it's written by Michael Z. Williams. And then the, actually the uh, yeah. The first anthology, uh, Freehold Resistance, and I, I wrote some of it. I wrote all the intervening text, and it's uh, I've got several other authors. It's really a mosaic novel because there is a running timeline from the universe going the whole way through from beginning to end. And some of these stories are episodic, and then some of them intersperse. There's four stories that intersperse with the others. But uh, I, I got a bunch of people in dozens of technical fields, um, IT forensics, Neuroscience, um, an intelligence officer, a pilot, a field artillery officer, combat medic, engineer, me, a um, couple of weapons experts, uh, multiple bestsellers, multiple uh, academy graduates, several officers, several enlisted, and some of these people with multiple hats, uh, a right. former SEAL officer. And uh, I assigned some stories, some of them proposed some stories. And, you know, it's, it's an insurgency. It starts off with, uh, our military has just been bombed. Our cities have been occupied. What do we do? And it ends up with the, uh, the invaders going. So they've got standardized weapons and equipment, an intelligence network, command. How did they do this? <laughs> while the, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, while, while the uh, invaded peoples are turning the tables on them and, uh, <laughs> yeah. so I, and it, you don't have to read any of the novels for it to make sense because it's got the timeline fed into it as to the events right. that happen. And uh, yeah, I didn't write a lot of it, so I can actually read that one. So, <laughs> but there's some so that was called, what was there, that called again? And, uh, some new authors. And Freehold Resistance. Okay, good. And if someone wants to find you, how do they find you on the uh, either social or on internet? Uh, MichaelZWilliamson.com goes to my website. Um, um, my hobby is at sharppointythings.com, which is you know, making, selling, and uh, 
you know, knives, the, the custom stuff's on there. I do some commercial stuff, but that's all the custom stuff. I, I don't do Twitter. My, my Facebook wall is a chaotic mess of uh, people fighting each other. So the, uh, the website's good. It links to my blog. Okay, good. So michaelzwilliamson.com. Yep. Great. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Uh-huh. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Owen Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Mike. Thank you very much for having me. 